I actually can't run anymore. And some of you, I've had people tell me every year, well, just train a little bit, just train to walk. And I'm a worn out wannabe, but I'm all for this. And um, I'm going to be handing out water. I'm supporting it financially. And how can you be involved as well? And thank you, Kim. And thank you, Sue. Because this has, been a, has become kind of a significant time each year for us. Uh, when we hit the marathon weekend, we'll have a Saturday night service, and then the whole church is free to help out on Sunday morning or to participate. So that's coming in first week of May. Okay, we're in uh, Bridge Kids. You're, you're out of here. The rest of us in, are in Luke chapter 16. We continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. So how many here know the name Van Halen? Just do you know the name? Okay. That's interesting. A few, but not everybody. That's funny. Uh, They have been kind of a successful rock band, and they've sold over 80 million records. According to David Lee Roth, the original lead singer of Van Halen, he said that Van Halen had a unique clause stuck in the middle of their contracts when they were on the road touring. It was Clause 126. Each contract insisted that a bowl of M&Ms be provided backstage at every event, and there must not be any brown M&Ms in the bowl at all, zero. And if Van Halen found a brown M&M in their bowl, they could walk out of their contract and be fully paid. It was kind of a big deal. At first it seems, you know, maybe a bit ridiculous to cancel a show over such a small detail. But with a little investigation, we learn uh, this about their method of mad- madness because Van Halen took touring on the road as a band to an entirely new level. Um, they did huge productions. And when they traveled, they took nine 18-wheelers. The other big bands of the time took three 18-wheelers. Um, In planning and setting up for a show, there were more technical specifications with way more people to put this all together. It required uh, that floors have an adequate weight-bearing measure. It required, obviously, uh, lighting. It required um, electrical technical specifications. Once in Colorado, the venue did not have an adequate floor rating for the stage, and if the stage had been set up, the floor would have fallen through. Clause 126, with its restrictions on brown M&Ms, was just a test. Because they believed if somebody couldn't follow through with the M&Ms, What could they be trusted with throughout all of the other technical requirements for each show? Do you know that Jesus has a value like that? 
He said, whoever can be trusted with very little also can be trusted with much. And when he was talking about trusted with little, and we're, this is from Luke 16.10, he was talking about money. He was talking about wealth. He was talking about your money. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, Luke 16, uh, 1 through 7. I have to get over here in the light. We're going to uh, look at the first seven verses. going to start with that. And um, there we go. Now I can read. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. I hope you have a scripture to follow along with. Jesus told his disciples, so think in terms of to his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So uh, he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Self, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that I, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Well, 800 gallons of olive oil. I think uh, some of your translations say 900. That's a technical one because the original is somewhere between two and between eight and 900. And so it, it's about 875 gallons if you really want to be technical. Um, and then the manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and to make it 400. Let's just cut it in half. Verse 7. Then he asked about the second, and how much do you owe? And a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. And verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So that's our story. And uh, typically with parables... Jesus presents a problem to solve. And here's the problem we see uh, right off the bat in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That's the problem. And that is a problem because this man had an employee who was given basically uh, authority because this was like a steward it was, uh, here's a very wealthy man. This man has uh, hundreds and hundreds of acres. And uh, it's rented out to uh, other farmers, uh, people who um, are producing olive oil, and pro people who are producing wheat. And he, so this is rent. And uh, there's a debt due for uh, using the land. And so this manager or this steward has the job to represent his manager. He has the authority of his manager. He can do business for the manager. And what this manager says goes in the name of his employer, the rich man. So this employee has authority over vast resources, and he's wasting his manager's possessions. He's not working to bring his manager uh, prosperity or um, success. He's not trying to represent doing business in a way that's honorable. 
He's gotten sloppy and selfish, and perhaps he's embezzling from his master. And then in verse 2, the story continues, and he called them, uh, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Because, hey, you're fired. You're out of here. And so the manager said to himself, what am I going to do now? I'm found out. I'm losing my job. I'm done. I'm not, he thinks about his options. Hey, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough. I've had a desk job all these years. And hey, I don't think I could ever go out on the street and beg for money. With verse uh, 4 comes introspection. I know what I'm going to do when I lose my job here. He knows he's losing his job and he doesn't argue about it. He says, I know what I'm going to do. And people will welcome me into their houses. So you can see uh, the wheels are turning. He has a plan. Uh, He has a plan to use his ability to gain friends, to gain a social network that will embrace him in his time of need. Because he's going to lose the cushy house on the rich man's estate. So he hatches this scheme in verses 5 through 7. So here's what the dishonest manager does. He he calls in each of his master's debtors. They owe the master. They owe the rich man. And how much do you owe? Okay, 900 gallons of olive oil. That would have been pretty significant in the first century. That's that's the wealth. And so they, they barter. They don't do much with cash. 900 gallons of olive oil is like cash, as well as 1,000 bushels of wheat is like cash. And so he cuts one of the bills uh, 50%. He cuts the other bill by 20%. And he uses his authority as this steward, as this employee representing a man, the owner of this estate, He uses his authority that's delegated to him to represent honestly the owner. He does have the authority to reduce the debt. He has been given that authority. In a sense, he's not breaking a law when it comes to doing business for his master. And so he uses his authority And what was his purpose in doing that? Well, it was to make new friends. He uses his authority to make new friends. And hey, how would you like that? You know, somebody just cut your mortgage in half. Whoa, thanks. You know, somebody just uh, cut your credit card debt in half. Or somebody else cut another debt, your your car payment by 20%. And uh, it's like, hey, thanks for helping me. Thanks for discounting my olive oil 50%. If there's a time you need help, you just let me know. Hey, thanks for cutting my wheat costs down by 20%. Hey, if I can ever help out, just tell me. And the last thing he did was he ripped off his boss. His actions cost the landowner significant resources. He did not manage his boss's property well. Verses uh, 8 through 15, we come to the interpretation. 
This is a story like many of Jesus' parables. There was a certain man. Jesus sometimes starts his parables that way. And the certain man often represents God. In this case, it does. God is the rich man in the story, and he had loaned resources. This man, in the story, had loaned resources to a person who was sloppy in his management. Do you think God ever owns, loans his resources to people who are sloppy in the way they care for what God has given to them? The idea of stewardship as a follower of Christ, this comes through in many different parables. The idea is that God owns everything, Psalm 24, 1. And um, he's placed us here to care for his world. And he's given us resources to take care of for him. Things like our jobs and our material possessions, our lives, everything that relates to our choices. And we are to manage well for him. On a specific day here, the owner of everything um, held his, called his employee to an accounting. What is this I hear? There's, this is a time for an accounting. And we also know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, that everyone who is a follower of Christ, uh, meaning everyone who uh, has placed their faith in Christ and their sins are forgiven and they're going to heaven, everyone who is a follower of Christ will stand before God for an accounting. And the idea is for rewards. There's also, I think, going to be some sadness for what we missed if we could have been rewarded and we weren't. I can remember explaining this to some believers years ago, and they just, that's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? God is the one who uh, gave us salvation. God is the one who provides everything for us. And if he decides to give rewards to people for obedience and commitment to him, is that a problem? Um, So just like uh, Jesus' other parables, there's at least one major idea here, and perhaps here there's more than one, but one idea and a few applications in verse 8, we see a commendation. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So this is still part of the story. The owner of all the property saw what his manager had done. And he, he, he understood quickly what this was about. And I think he would probably chuckle to himself. Um, yeah, he just lost some significant resources. He just lost some significant wealth. But he commends his manager for acting shrewdly. He's not happy about dishonesty, but he recognizes the shrewdness and the creativity of his manager. Now Jesus weighs in about this story in the next part of verse 8. He says, For the people of this world, like the man in the story, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. This parable is an example of financial 
shrewdness on the part of non-Christians to negotiate their financial futures. Jesus' point is the world is more resourceful and more creative in handling financial resources than many Christians. And here he means the people of light. Now, as Jesus weighs in on this story, he's not commending the manager in any way for dishonesty. That's not what this is about. It's about the shrewdness. It's about the forethought that went into his plan and his decision to think ahead and to choose his priority. He's not saying it was a good one. And he's saying... The secular mind is often more creative than people who follow Christ in how they think about their financial resources and the future. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and his followers are to walk in the light, in the truth, in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are children of light. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, You were once in darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. This is who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about believers and the way they handle finances. And in the story, the man's um, view of finances, was he was very resourceful to plan on what he thought he should do and what was important to him. And here's uh, the implication Be shrewd with your finances as a Christ follower. Be shrewd with your finances. Don't be be dishonest. Be shrewd. Be wise. Be creative. Think outside the box when it comes to the use of your financial resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I would argue a good example is that Team World Vision has come up with a creative way to think outside of the box on raising resources for under-resourced people in another continent. Creative. So it's about being shrewd and handling your finances and accomplishing the Lord's priority. That's why we were put here is to accomplish His priorities first and our priorities second. And if you put His priorities first, He's going to care well for you. In verses 9 through 13, we have instruction about um, what Jesus thinks about resources. Uh, Verse 9 in the first application. Here's what he says in verse 9. I tell you, this is to his disciples. Are you a disciple? Are you a Christ follower? I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Just like the man in the story. For the future. Not for the problems of now, but for the future. Yes, you have to care for your current situation. But you also need to have a plan for your future to gain friends. So that when it is gone, when life is over, when your life is done, 
you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And he's definitely talking about heaven. He's bringing in a whole new spiritual dimension. This is about investing in eternity with financial giving. It's not about your time and your talents. There's so many parables. Jesus is really clear. He's not talking about your time and your talents. He's talking about your money. It's about living well now to plan for the day you arrive in heaven. It's about using your money to advance God's purposes on earth. Things like making disciples. That's the mission, helping people connect with God. About helping people evangelism, helping people come to faith in Christ. It's about discipleship, helping them grow in Christ. It's about supporting organizations that advance the kingdom of God. It's about sponsoring a child because Jesus cares about those children. He cares about the poor. And we know that from Scripture. It's about providing clean water when we know we can. It's about supporting our missionaries who are out representing Christ on our behalf because God will recognize you're giving when you get to heaven. And there are going to be people there that you've made an impact on, perhaps people you've never met, because of your generosity. Maybe there'll be some kids that got water that came to faith later, and one day you're going to get to heaven, and one day they're going to get to heaven, and God is going to connect you with them, and you're going to know the story. Somebody that the church reached, and you were a part of the church as the body of Christ on mission, making disciples. And somebody's going to say, thank you. And so the application is this. Let your generosity with God help advance his kingdom work. Let your generosity with God help advance his kingdom work. Um, Jesus also instructed in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So he's saying, as your primary value, it's not about you and your kingdom and just you having the good life. And that's pretty confusing in America because we have a different message here in America. It's about you and your choices and you need to be happy. And Jesus is saying, whoa, it's more than that. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Again, this is about money. It's not about your time. It's not about your talent. It's not about your good works. This one is about money. There's plenty of other passages about doing good for God and serving Him. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's eternal. Where moths and vermin do not destroy. It's not temporary. And where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus understood people. It's about generosity, your heart, your generosity to God. It's about your devotion to Christ and his kingdom, and it's nothing else. 
Devotion to Christ and His kingdom. It's about your spiritual life. It's an essential part of your spiritual life, laying up treasure in heaven. It's not an additional thing to do if you have time and if you have money left over. It's just essential. Essential. There's a second application in verses 10 through 12. Jesus goes on. Whoever can be trusted in very little can also be trusted with much. Van Halen, right? Van Halen and Jesus right there. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be be dishonest with much. So we've been given a stewardship with God. Our job is to manage well what he's given us. If God can't trust us to fill a bowl of M&Ms, why is he going to give us something more later now, by the way, I just want to be clear. This is not about earning salvation. This is not about earning your way to heaven. It's not about giving money so you can go to heaven. Please know that is not the gospel. There's only one way, and that's through Christ and his death on the cross. But giving financially is for those who follow Christ. It's for his disciples. If you are a disciple, this is for you. There's something about the future that I do not understand, but God wants to entrust to us something way more than we've ever imagined. For, and it's related to how we live here. If you mismanage your money, if you are self-focused with His money, if you are stingy with God, there's much in the way of eternal riches that are possible for you that you won't be given. If you are generous with God in the little things, if you are generous with God in your, with your money, Jesus is saying you can be trusted with much more and it will be coming in eternity. In verse 11 he says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? God is looking for people who are trustworthy with their money. He's looking for people who are, trust, who are trustworthy with his money. True riches. This has never been about you having more wealth on this earth. If God wants to bless you, that's awesome. May he just pour his blessing, his favor on you that you can be financially wealthy. But this, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about true riches which are ultimately given in heaven, the true value, the most important of all. In verse 12, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, God's property, who will give you property of your own. Second application, be trustworthy before God with all that God provides for you. I don't know, is that, yeah, that's the second one. Be trustworthy before God. Can he count on you? You follow through. Are you honest? Trustworthy with what God provides for you. Because each of us will give an accounting before Jesus one day. So be trustworthy. Follow your Lord's priorities with your money. 
There's another parable about stewardship. It's called the parable of talents. And again, that's about the talents are gold. It isn't about your time. And it's not about your abilities. It's about your financial resources. Matthew 25, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. See, one day there's going to be an accounting. And this is just a little picture of that. So this businessman gives uh, his money to peop- his, his servants, and he says, go invest this for me, and then uh, one day we're going to sit down and go over it. And here he is. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. One day we're going to stand before God. And I want to hear well done. This is what pleases Jesus, our faithfulness. Faithfulness with money. Third application. Comes in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. A pretty well-known verse. Either you hate the one and or love the other. And this is not about your emotional love. Because it's easy for somebody to say, well, I don't love my 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 material wealth. I don't love my money. Well, this is not about your emotional thoughts or your emotional feelings. This is about your priorities. It's, why, it's about values. Which, who has the highest value? Which values are the highest for you? There's an African proverb. The man who tries to walk on two roads will split his pants. Be careful. You either love one or, and to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Your devotion to God includes your money. It's a very important part of your love for God. You cannot deny that. Serving God with your money is an essential part of spiritual formation where God is molding and changing us to be just more like Jesus and having more priorities like Him. Third application, be devoted to Christ with your money. Another way to say it is love God with your money. Matthew 6, you've heard a lot here, uh, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom of God with your money. And by the way, that's the context of Matthew 6. Yes, seek first the kingdom of God with all of your life and all that you are. May it include your money and, and all these things, the things that you need, God says, He's going to give to you. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you are afraid to be generous with God. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, if you've been around here long, you know it's one of my favorite passages. And the Apostle Paul tells the church, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He's talking about giving and receiving. And he's saying if you're stingy with God, expect God to be stingy with you. Verse 7. Each of you should give what, he, what you have decided in your heart to give. There's a decision that each person has to make. Each of you decide. 
that parents, you have to teach your kids so that they can learn to make decisions with their resources for God. And you can teach them in very small ways. If you're married, both of you need to be involved in a decision on what you will do with your resources for God. Each of you should give. Should give. Not withhold what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly. God isn't interested to be happy to decide. God, I choose to please you. I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. Thank you that Jesus died. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers me. Thank you for promises, for your provision for my life and my family. And I just want to do what you want me to do. And I just set aside this for you. It's not a big fanfare. It's just your humble decision before God. Texas founder of Federal Express, Fred Smith, once said, God entrusts us with money as a test. It's like M&M's. God entrusts us with money as a test. For like a child, it is handling, it is handling things of more value. Oh, I, hang on. Here's what it says. God entrusts us with money as a test. For like a toy to, the ch- to a child, makes a little more sense, it is training for handling things of more value. Kids learn so much with their own toys. There's some pushback in verses 14 through 15, which I will save for next week, Okay. When Peter Marshall was chaplain of the United States Senate in the late 1940s, he was a pastor in Washington, D.C., a man approached him to say to Dr. Marshall, he said, I have a problem. I've been tithing for many years. It wasn't bad when I made $20,000 and my tithe was $2,000 a year. I could afford it. But now, I'm making $500,000 a year, and I can't afford to give a $50,000 tithe. Dr. Marshall agreed with him and said, you do have a problem. Maybe we could pray about it together. Dr. Marshall prayed, dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, please reduce his salary back to an amount that he can afford to tithe. Be stingy with God. Be generous with God. You know, we have many generous givers at the bridge. And what I've said today is just a reminder. We have so many generous people here. And I'm proud to be a part of this church. We also have people who are afraid to trust God with their money. They're just not sure. If, you know, i got to pay my bills, i got to do these things, and I need to have a few things for myself. You know, it's not like just tipping God a little bit. It's about a choice. In fact, it's about honoring God from the first place. There are some people here who 
Don't give back to God at all. And I'm hoping that you will just learn to take a step. Can you trust God? Can you try it? You get to decide. You get to decide the portion. There's not a law here on how much you should give. It's your choice. It's a piece of the pie God has given you. Try giving something back to God. I think the first place is always the church. I think that's what the New Testament teaches. All the instructions in the, in the New Testament are to the church and for the church. And the church is supposed to reach out. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we support local outreach ministries here. And yes, I support. There's some great ministries outside of the church to support. Church first. Those other things come after that. I try to be as generous as possible with all of them. And I want you to take a step and learn to be generous with God. It's a process. As God um, provides for you and enables you, keep stepping toward generosity. So today we're going to close our service and celebrate communion. I want to uh, look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 are called the giving chapters. Two chapters all about financial giving. Look at this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. It's Jesus who was God in heaven, the Son of God who existed in heaven, and he became poor. He took on human flesh. We call it the incarnation. He took on poverty. He was born to poor parents. He was a servant. He did it for us. And ultimately, he would serve by paying the price for the sins of the whole world. He died on the cross for all of us, and he paid for all of our salvation. He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's not about the dollar bills. That's about your eternal home with God. That's what's going to be rich. Okay? Today we remember that. We remember his death. He died on the cross on our behalf. Today we take the bread and we take the cup. And they are reminders. We are to remember his death. We need to say thank you, God, for what he's done for us. Our Christian lives are response to that. It's why we serve him. It's why we love him. That's why we worship him is because of what he's done for us. That's why we give. So let's, uh, let's just bow our heads together and um, thank God for his provision of our salvation as well as his provision for us for all of our resources. And those who are going to serve, if you just uh, come on up to the front and uh, be ready. And so, Father, uh, we are very grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ who was rich and became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich, that we've received forgiveness, that we've received eternal salvation, that we've been given the Holy Spirit marked and sealed 
and gifted. We've been brought into a relationship with the Father. We give you thanks for your provision of our families and our friends, our jobs, our checking accounts, our savings accounts, the stuff we own that we manage in your behalf. Thank you. Most importantly, right now, we thank you for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was given for us, and we thank you for the bread. May we keep Jesus central in our lives. May we remember that his death gave us life. May we live in response to that. We thank you, too, for the cup that represents the blood that was shed at Calvary, the blood that was shed on the cross that was a payment for our sins. And for that, we say thank you. And Father, as we just um, sit before you, stand before you, may you direct our hearts. If there are any business that we need to do with you, something we need to confess, may we do that. May we come before you today with sins forgiven, sins confessed, thoroughly cleansed. Thank you that you've given us a promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Perhaps there are people here who want to think about a new commitment in their giving, how they will handle their money in the days ahead. May you guide them. May you teach us all to continue to be generous with what you've provided for us. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.